0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com Welcome everyone to the class on dating and Shalom bayis. I'd like to focus tonight on the topic of gathering the necessary information to determine if the person you are dating is someone that's suitable for you. You may recall that I spoke out recently that I was uh, interviewed on a radio show which had many thousands of listeners, and the topic of discussion was uh, broken engagements and quick divorces. That brought out of the woodwork many individuals reached out to me and have been seeing me recently to heal out from broken engagements and quick divorces. Most recently, some very bizarre cases have come to my attention. Just, Just today, I dealt with an individual who was divorced to a woman, that was her second marriage, and in her family there were eight divorces. I had another individual who, won- who recently came to see me who was involved in a marriage, but was never consummated because three years there, was, there were private issues. And it's been a, a whole gamut of this kind of stuff. So I've asked myself, what's going on here? What's creating all this stuff? And uh, I believe that the, the biggest problem here, the hurdle that we have to face is people are just jumping into marriages without doing the due diligence to determine who the person is, who they are. Do they work? Do they have family? Are they who they are? Are they authentic? Are they real? And you have to really do your homework today because we live in a world where people can be very deceptive. You can go online and you can decide to become whoever you want to become. And we have, unfortunately, these situations with J-Swipe and Sawyer at Sinai, where you can make up any fictitious character of who you want to become. And you can sell that story to someone. So now today I'm going to teach you how to determine if the person that you're with is authentic, is real, how to research that individual. What methods you could use. This is critical today. Isn't it better than having to get into a horrible divorce and then see your assets taken away by someone who was just, who was just using you? Recently I had a 22-year-old girl who just jumped into divorce, jumped into marriage rather. A year later she found out that the guy was a drug addict, of all types of problems with drugs, and now he's trying to extort $100,000 from her to give her the divorce. We'd rather try to avoid those kind of sorrowful situations. What can we do to protect ourselves? That's very important. Okay, so let's understand what can we do to gather the necessary information. By the way, anybody out there in the audience who'd like to speak with me on dating or Shalom Bias who needs help in terms of dating coaching or Shachanas who'd like to be matched up, please feel free to reach out to me on WhatsApp or call me or text me at 305-206-1916 from anywhere in the world. Again, it's 305-206-1916. So you can email me at drjackcohen 18 at gmail.com. I'll spell that D-R-J-A-C-K-C-O-H-E-N-1-A at gmail.com. I'd be delighted to help you. Thank God we help many, many people. Okay, let's talk about tonight's topic. How do we gather the necessary information to determine if the person that I'm with is a faker, is a fraud? Gathering information on a man or a woman is obviously the first and most critical step of the Shidduch process. It's your way of screening whether or not this person is suitable to be a marriage partner for you. Depending on exactly what you hear, you're going to go back to the matchmaker with a yes or a no. Because you may find that information that you may decide that person is not for you. There are those who take this step so seriously, they'll even daven and say psalms or tehillim before making the phone call. Gathering the information is typically a time-consuming, stressful process. Not everyone feels comfortable to call strangers to ask about people that they're interested in dating. They say, I'll, just, I'll go wing it and just take it from there. Decide who is going to take this step. Will it be you or if it's for your children, will you call for them or will your children call themselves? Once you decide to give a yes or a no to the boy or the girl... They will not be dating other people and it may be considered rude to keep them waiting too long to give them your answer. So be be you know respectful. Give the person a certain amount of time before you can determine if you want to date that person or not. Now you need to do what's called the background check. Consider this all too familiar situation. A well-wisher approaches and suggests you let your daughter go out with someone who's visiting New York for a few days. Let's say we live here. It's only one date, they say. What's the big deal? They're visiting from Los Angeles or Seattle or from Paris or Israel. Let her go out. What's the problem? If she likes him, you can look into the guy later. They may apply a lot of pressure on you. Well, he's a great guy, they're going to tell you. It would be such a missed opportunity if you don't let your daughter go out with him. Did we mention we need to know right away? So as part of you thinks it makes sense, you don't have the time to start investigating who it is, and you don't want to lose out on the opportunity. In a similar scenario, your daughter is out of town at someone's wedding. She's approached by someone who strikes up a conversation with her. The next thing you know, she's telling you that she's all set to meet a boy the next day. You have no idea who the person is. There's no time for the research that you otherwise would be responsibly able to do. Now what do you do? These situations make it prudent to skip or postpone the information process and simply see what a day or two it would yield. After all, for out-of-towners, air travel is expensive and time-consuming. Taking advantage of a convenient circumstance can seem logical. So in a case like that, you'd let them go out... Because, you know, they're out of town, you spend a lot of money to travel, so it makes sense. Okay, so beware, no matter what the scenario, motivation rationale, it's imperative to do the research before you send your child or yourself on a date. You need to maintain your interest and drive. Sometimes you get, you know, you go out on date after date after date, and you're not in the mood anymore because you're burnt out a little bit. You can't lose that momentum. It's important. The risk of getting emotionally involved with someone who's not good for you before you give before you do your research is dangerous. It will then be harder to stop the train once it's rolling. How many times have we had scenarios I had my in my own life relatives, a cousin of mine who used to go out with someone. My, my uncle wasn't happy with the guy. It ended up in a terrible divorce. She didn't listen to my uncle. She knew it wasn't good for her. But anyway, it is what it is. Here's a case. Blimey was staying at her friend Judy's house while going to a seminary reunion in New York. They had a college reunion. Okay. <clears throat> and Judy's mother thought of an idea and insisted that Blimey take advantage of the few days she was spending in the city. She was visiting from Los Angeles and meet a young man she had in mind for her. I'm sure I can get a date for you tomorrow night, her friend's mother urged. Don't worry. Tell your mother, they can look into him later. Let's just see if you like him. Shlomo is a boy with great reputation. So her friend's mother pushed her to going into a date. With, a little, with little time to think though, Blimi's parents agreed. They figured that one date means nothing and there will be plenty of time to look into friends if necessary. Sure enough, one date turned into three dates, seven hours each. Blimi was extremely taken by the young man. So much so, She didn't even want to go home. I had a case like this, by the way, this summer, where a mother called me. She didn't like what was going on with her daughter. Her daughter was dating someone from Los Angeles. The daughter decided to date the boy in Los Angeles. She got engaged in Los Angeles and didn't even want to come home. And now, she wasn't even talking to her parents anymore. So we have to be very cautious. Meanwhile, Blimey's sister went into labor a few weeks earlier than expected. Her parents had their hands full babysitting the older children and needed her to come back. The days wore by, now there was all this other stuff, like a brisk was coming up. Shlomo flew into Los Angeles to see Blimi Before anybody even realized, they met six times, and were talking seriously between themselves. But when things finally calmed down in Blimi's house, her parents felt it was time to start checking out the boy. But now he's already gone out with close to twelve times. They discovered that Shlomo had been engaged in the past... And the engagement had broken a week before the wedding. They couldn't imagine why Shlomo didn't tell Blimi this. This is important information. You want to know what happened. You don't just break off, break off for a relationship one week before the wedding. With trepidation and concern, they've made more and more phone calls. When Blimi heard what they found out, she betrayed by Shlomo. She felt betrayed by the man. He didn't tell her everything. And she was puzzled about what really happened. Meanwhile, Shlomo was waiting, well, let's go. I want to go out with the next date. Shouldn't she simply confront him? Should she try and learn what happened before his back? Tension mounted in the family as they made inquiries. And then they found out that it was his fault and they had to break it up, but it was a lot of problems between Blimi and her parents. So we see what happens when you don't do the proper research at the beginning, you can have a lot of problems. And oftentimes the child doesn't listen to you and they're going to do what they want. Of course, all rules have exceptions. Once in a while there may be a reason to take advantage of a small amount of time. There may be circumstances where meeting one person would be worth it. Okay. Some parents don't want to call. They feel like, you know, why do I have to make any phone calls? If that's the case, it's important to reframe your thinking. Because you don't want to call strangers. You have to tell yourself you're calling strangers about the person that your son or daughter want to want to go out with. You're not prying. You're not spying. You want to determine if the person is suitable for your son or your daughter. You're not simply going on a nonsense investigation. You're asking specific questions aimed at a specific conclusion. You're doing the necessary work so that you and your son or daughter will have the proper mindset before a date. And this way you can go into the date with enthusiasm. Otherwise you're not afraid. Who is he? What's he all about? Who is she? What's he all about? Keep in mind that almost everyone is or will be in the same boat. Every one of us is going to have children who are dating or ourselves that we're dating. And we need to reach out to people who can possibly give us more information about the individual. Most people when they hear that an inquiry is about a shidduch are eager to help. So don't think that people are not going to help you or they may not listen to you or take your phone call. They want to help you. People are usually not put out if your manner is polite and your requests are respectful. You have to speak in a nice courteous way. Remember that you're checking out someone to be able to give your son or daughter a go ahead to be able to date without worry and concern. The time and trouble you invest in talking to a wide variety of people will serve only to help. If changing your frame of mind feels impossible because you feel like you're embarrassed to call, then it might be best to ask a close friend of the family to make the phone calls and let them do it for you. For example, Bina was starting to look into a boy for her oldest daughter. She had the names of several references. The first one was a woman who went to the same summer bungalow colony as the boy's parents. Bina did not recognize the name and felt awkward and uncomfortable about calling a total stranger. She had always been shy and somehow prided herself on minding her own business. And she wasn't the kind of person who liked to ask too many questions about people. Bina approached her friend Tova who married off several children. Because her friend already had married off children, should she know what to do in terms of making the phone calls? When Bina shared her difficulty and that she was embarrassed to call, Tova said that getting information was not to be confused with listening to secret. You're making a request because this is your children's lives are at stake, or it could be your life that's at stake. Tova reminded her that the questions would be about the man's personality, his life goals, his emotional makeup. Some of the questions you might ask is, does he have an anger problem? Is he cheap? Is he inflexible? Does he have issues of being stubborn? These are the kind of questions you're going to ask anyway. You want to know these things, because these things are, make the difference, will determine the difference whether you live with someone who is a human being with good values, or an individual who acts like an animal. You don't want to take chances later and fall into a trap. So you're not making questions. You're not asking questions because you're looking to ask secrets. You're doing this for the welfare and good of yourself, if you're the one who is getting married, or if it's for the welfare and good of your son and daughter. When Bina heard this, she was able to approach the, 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 the people, the references, in a respectful way, asking clear, thought-out questions. Now, who do you look for for information? Now, you can ask the matchmaker. They may know something about them, but sometimes the matchmakers are not so neutral because they want to push the person. And I had a, re- a case recently where the matchmaker, the one who was the matchmaker, pushed a girl and made the girl think, that there was nothing wrong with the guy when the girl was with a, a, a certain boy that she was about to be engaged with. And she had one brother who she likes a lot. And she was hugging the brother. And the person she was going out with pushed the brother right out of the picture and Says, I don't want you in the picture with the family. She saw right away that he had very bad tendencies. So, you, you can't... And then when she went back to the matchmaker, she says, no, it's nothing wrong. It's perfectly okay. Broken engagement. So... Be careful, you know, you have to ask questions from all types of people. Make sure you get neutral answers. You're going to want to talk to the people who near, live near the person. Or at people that are related to him, and went to school with that person. Or yeshiva, or camp. Even if you don't personally know anyone who's connected to the, to the man or the woman, find someone in their city that you do know, and start doing some networking. If you know no one in that particular city where the man or woman live, ask a well-connected person in your community to make some inquiries for you. Sometimes high school principals, they know a lot of people. Or uh, teachers can offer to help you. Follow up with your own conversations. Make as many calls as you need to feel that you have a complete picture of the individual. Now, there's, here's some examples of people you can call. You can call people that that man or woman's family... Are married into, which we call in Yiddish mechutanim. Let's say, let's say you're looking into a boy, so he has sisters, right? That are married, so you can call up the other side to find out what's this family like. You married into this family, what are they like? Okay, and that's what you could do. In many cases, mechutanim that are married into that family can be an excellent source of objective information about the boy or the girl. After all, they have seen this family, and that particular individual at many weddings and bar mitzvahs, and may be able to impart concrete facts about the person. That would be a good starting point. Another person to call is the rabbi of their shul. Call the rabbi of their shul, of the family where that person davens or goes to synagogue. Calling the shul rabbi is common for basic information. Try to determine how the rabbi knows the family and how he knows the boy or the girl. How long have they davened in their shul? What's the family's general reputation? Does the rabbi know of any negative interactions in his family that, that, that the community has had with them? For example, does the, man, does the father of the boy have a bad reputation in business? Did the mother do something bad? Did they embarrass anyone? Are the parents very involved socially, or do they keep a low profile? Is there anything the rabbi feels you should know before proceeding with a date with this boy or girl from this family? Is there anyone in the shul you could call for further information? This is the kind of information that the rabbi can help you with. If the man or woman pray at the rabbi shul, what, can, what does he have to say about them? Are they courteous? Are they kind? Are they compassionate? Are they nice to other people? Be direct in your questions so the rabbi knows what you want to hear. Listen for cues. Sometimes the rabbi will just give you a hint because he doesn't want to speak bad language what we call Lashon Hara. So watch how the rabbi answers the question. If he answers it quickly and clearly, you know that he's in favor of that man or the woman. But if he has to like, think about the answer, then you have to wonder if the rabbi is trying to hold something back. Establish that the family meets your standards of what? how observant do you want them to be in terms of religion and Yiddishkeit. And that their home is a place where your son or daughter would be comfortable. Ask if his wife, the Rebetzin, knows the family and if she wouldn't mind spending some time talking to you as well. Calling teachers or Rebbeim. That's another source of information about the prospective man or woman. Most men and women list their teachers as references. In some cases, the young man, for example, is very close to a certain Rebbe who can provide invaluable information. In other situations, however, the Rebbeim only know the boy's skill at learning Torah or Gemara, always determine what kind of relationship he has had with the boy. Then you can tailor your question to elicit the information. For example, if the Rebbe you are calling is a high school Rebbe, and the boy is now 26 or 28 years old, and he has not been in touch with him for about 8 to 10 years, you are limited in terms of what you can learn, because it has been 8 or 9 years since the boy has had interaction with that teacher or Rebbe. So ask the Rebbe about the boy's family. His impression of the family. What's their general demeanor? Are they nice? Are they kind? Or are they hard? Are they mean? Are they selfish? Are they arrogant? Are they bossy? Are they noisy? Right? Ask the Rebbe or the teacher if anything about the boy or girl or the family stood out or concerned you. If the Rebbe knows where the boy continued on after high school, ask if he knows anyone you can call in that college where he may be or the rabbinical yeshiva. If you're talking to a rebbe that the boy has now, you can. You may be in a key position to. He may be in a key position to give you insight. Ask him how the the boy likes to learn, or how mature he is, or how sensitive he is to people, or what's his attitude like. Here too, make sure to ask what type of relationship that that boy or has with the rebbe, or that girl has with the teacher. Do they speak only in learning, or does the rebbe know the boy's other contexts as well? Does he know what his behavior is like? Here's a case. Mr. Melamed wanted a top boy for his youngest daughter, Rachel. After all, she was an A student, and she deserved the best of the best of boys. When Rav Hilkeman's said that Shmo was not his top boy in the class, but he was a good learner. Mr. Melamed figured it was time to move on and look at other boys. Little did he know that Rav Inkelman's standards were very high, and that typically only future great stars even attended his shiur. So that boy was an excellent boy, but that teacher didn't grade very high because he had very high demanding standards. Find out if the boy has a relationship with his Rebbe's family or with other families who live near the yeshiva. Is there somewhere, is he frequently goes for Shabbos. Maybe you can find out where that boy eats his meals on Shabbos and then you can ask about what he's like to the family. What questions are you allowed to ask? What to ask when getting information is one of the most fundamental questions in the entire matchmaking or shidduch process. Obviously, there's no one list of questions that would suit every situation. What is to be asked depends on the boy you are researching and the specific needs of your daughter or the girl you are researching and the specific needs of your boy. Each phone call demands thought and attention in determining what you need to know from that particular individual and how to most effectively get that information. Keep in mind, That you have to always remember you can't speak Lashon hara, or negative discussion, right? And you have to know what you're allowed to ask and what you cannot ask. Start with the basics. Always determine how do you know the boy? If you ask someone, if you call someone about the boy or the girl, how do you know them? Be clear whether you're speaking to someone who's a relative or a friend. Are you also familiar with the family of the boy or the girl? You can ask them. Once you've determined the nature of the relationship, You can ask, what can you tell me about their personality? Are they shy? Are they outgoing? Are they kind? Are they considerate? What do you know about their goals? Do you know how their parents feel about their future plans? Avoid questions like, is he kind? Because they're going to lie and they're going to tell you for sure. You have to ask different types of questions. Try not to reveal exactly what you're looking for. Always keep in mind that you're trying to determine if he has any specific character faults, like anger, like stinginess. Always keep this at the forefront of your questioning. Ask them, is there anything that you would like to, that you could tell me about his, his generosity, his anger, his lack of patience? Are their goals similar to the goals of your son or daughter? Are your, are their life goals complementary? Is this a boy or girl that my son or daughter can respect? Do they come from a background that your daughter or son can relate to? It's also important to make sure that you and the person on the other end have the same frame of reference. What does quiet mean to you? To someone else, it may mean that they don't talk at all. To you, it means they talk a lot, but they're just quiet some of the time. You have to make sure that you have the same definitions. What do they mean if they tell you that he's a serious Torah, a student of Torah? That is one reason why it's valuable to speak to as many people as possible, because everyone judges differently. When they say open-minded, what does that mean? To some people that may not be religious at all. To some people it means they're religious, but they read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Find out what that means. What about financial issues? Financial issues are a delicate subject when it comes to shidduchim. Asking specifically about money, how much the parents have is not considered nice. That's rude and irrelevant. Why would you want to know how much money the parents have? Remember that a shidduch is about your child's needs, not yours. Determining that someone is rich does not really tell you anything about the family, because that's not what you should be looking for. Many people marry into money and they're miserable. So Money doesn't make you happy. And even if you marry someone who has money, that doesn't mean the parents are going to give you money. Now Many wealthy people do not share your ideas about giving money to their children. Conversely, many people who may appear to be without money, have put away money for their children and are very able and willing to help support. So you can't generalize. If there are real concerns about the amount of support the other side will be willing to give... It may be important to address them. If that's the case, the best way to honestly find out is to ask the matchmaker, ask the shatchan. I'm willing to share the support of the of, of the young couple. If I'm willing to put up a certain amount, will they share with me? While you may not be comfortable in discussing this topic, it's important to be very clear now in order to avoid problems down the road. Depending on the specifics of the circumstances, you'll have to decide whether to do this at the outset or not. Here's another one, mental illness, a problem today, a big problem. We're all very conscious of the sin of speaking Lashon hara, which we don't like to speak badly of others, right? Now, keep in mind that because many people are vigilant in refraining from speaking Lashon hara, they may be only answered to specific questions. Here, here's a case, a shilich was suggested for Devorah. He was a boy who lived near her and he seemed pleasant. Because he lived near her friends, Devorah had seen him a few times and something about him made her uncomfortable. At her insistence, her parents began to call around. At first, people offered brief little descriptions of the boy. It took three phone calls to the same people, a question, a strong reminder of what the stakes were, and they finally determined that the boy had a serious psychological disorder. So, if you do your homework, ask rabbis and teachers, friends, about the boy's social network. That's very important. What's his social style? Ask if there was ever any behavior that was concerning or unusual. If you pick up any hesitation from when they talk to you, make a note of it. In a polite way, you can comment by saying, you seem a little hesitant when I asked you that question. So if you see that there's any degree of hesitancy when they answer a question, you know that you have to do further digging and investigation. So you can tell them, I really would appreciate it if you could tell me a little bit more about it. See what you hear, if you hear what you hear is consistent among the other people you speak to. You always want to see consistency in all the answers that you get from all the people that you call. How could you, How do you make the phone call? There's one rule regarding how to ask questions. Make sure you do it politely, not rudely. Begin by introducing yourself, although you may be hesitant to mention your name. Most people are reluctant to reveal personal information about others to an anonymous voice. If you call up and say, Hi, I'd like to ask you questions about a certain boy, and you don't want to tell them who you are, that sounds pretty fishy. You better be ready to tell them who you are, if you have nothing to hide, and maybe feel like a violation of your privacy to admit who you are, but you have to tell them. Because no one wants to open up and tell information to a total stranger. Now, how do I understand and interpret what they tell me? How do I interpret what I hear? Evaluating the information you get sometimes takes careful and wise thought as well as the ability to read between the lines. Many people will say something important like this. It's not what they say that counts. It's what they don't tell you. It's what they don't say. If the other person at the other end of the line is one of the boy's references, chances are they like him a lot, so they're only going to say good things about him. They want to further his best interest and to try to help him. To this end, they may give you the answers you seem to be looking for. Paint the boy you are asking about in an exaggerated positive light. It's therefore your responsibility to be clear about what you want to know and make sure you understand the answers. For example, Shaney was very excited to go out on a certain date. It was only her second boy and family friends really raved about the guy, said he was a great guy. They were very close to the boy's family and thought he was terrific. Swayed by their enthusiasm, her parents neglected to do good checking, it simply never occurred to them that such a good boy and such a good and family friends would set up their 25-year-old daughter with a man who was 39 years old never bothered to tell her how old he was but they clearly had they weren't malicious they weren't deliberately deceptive they they really thought he was a great guy but at 25 she was unable and unwilling to see past the age and date someone who was 39 14 years older than her Pay close attention to the order in which people speak about someone. When asking open-ended questions such as, tell me about him or her, listen closely to the first answer you receive. Is the first thing they tell you is that he has a sense of humor? Or is it that he's selfless and he cares about others? What do they put as number one? Is the first piece of information offered that he's in the top class, top share, or that he works at Camp Simcha? Depending on, on what your daughter needs, these differences can be highly relevant. By speaking to a variety of people, you can formulate a composite picture of the suggested Shidduch. With each phone call, you should be able to fine-tune and clarify what the person is all about in a general sense. You're not merely collecting facts, you're developing a mental picture of the person that you're going to go out with or your son or daughter are going to go out with. You're also going to get an idea of what their family is like, their personality, their strengths, and their goals. What happens if one person tells you A and the other person tells you the opposite, B? If you see discrepancies in the information that you receive from various references, it's your responsibility to clear them up. I continue to do further investigation until you get to the bottom of who's saying the truth and who's not telling the truth. If there is a vagueness in what you hear, it's your responsibility to clarify the picture. Here's a case. Mrs. Marcus had phoned phoned four references about Avraham. She heard some nice things about his family and about his seriousness in learning. But she couldn't quite get a picture of her mom's life goals. She knew her daughter specifically wanted someone with a lot of energy and a lot of charisma. And an outgoing guy and pursuing a career in perhaps trying to help Jews that are not religious, what we call Kiruv. Her daughter was clear about that as her future desire. This is what she wanted in a husband. And had dated too many boys that were way off the mark of what she wanted. Kiruv was her life's passion. She wanted to be able to help other Jews come back to the Judaism. So far, Avram didn't sound like a match in that regard. Mrs. Marcus did not want to dismiss a good boy, though. It, looks like, it looked like a good shidduch. Perhaps her impressions were off. The next person she phoned was a friend or chavrusa of Avram's. Hi, my name is Mrs. Marcus from Chicago, and I wondered if I uh, can I speak to you. Is this a convenient time? Sure. How can I help you? Well, I wanted some information about a boy that was suggested for my daughter. Mr. Greenberger, Avram Greenberger. Oh, of course. I learned with him for two years. I know him very well. He is a great guy. Can you start off by telling me where you learned with him and if you still keep in touch with him? Well, we went to the Mirai Yeshiva together about a year ago. I came home. I got married. But we're, we're very much in touch. I speak to him all the time. We're actually very close friends great. I have heard a lot about his great Midos's his qualities of character, and about his family, and even about his brains. But I really want to know, is can you tell me something about his personality? Oh, he's the nicest guy around. You won't find a sweeter guy. He's the type to do anything for anyone. I could call him in the middle of the night to do an airport pickup, and he would drop everything to come and pick me up from the airport. Sounds like great information. That sounds impressive. I was just wondering if you would describe him as someone who is more reserved in nature, like more quiet, or more outgoing and bubbly and passionate. Hmm, Well, I'm not sure what you mean exactly. Well, do you see him as more refined or more high energy and outgoing and extroverted? Honestly, probably more refined. He comes from a very refined family. Okay, I see. Do you have a sense of what Avram will do in the future? Has he ever spoken to you about what he wants to do with his life? Well, Avram has mentioned that he would like to learn for a while and probably join his father's business. Maybe even pick up an accounting degree at some point. Wow, that's nice. Does that help you? Well, I'll be honest with you. My daughter is very passionate about wanting a boy who will go into Kiruv to teach other Jews how to become religious. I get the feeling that Avram's strength lies elsewhere. Kiruv, well, I can't honestly say. I I can see Avram doing that, but you never know. Maybe she should just meet him and find out. Mrs. Marcus proceeded to make a few phone calls to a few other people. After several conversations, she concluded that Avram might be too far from what her daughter needed and that she would hold off for now. So she did the proper investigation and was able to determine that this boy wasn't right for her daughter. Now, be aware of hidden agendas. Sometimes there's jealousy. Jealousy you call a friend and that friend isn't married so they don't want to say something nice about the person that you're calling about because they're jealous so you have to be on the lookout for that maybe you're calling the parents of a certain boy and that and they have a daughter they'd like to see the boy get married to that right they want the boy for their own daughter or their niece right or maybe they, the boy got into a top class that their son did not get into, and now they're, they're they're hurt, so they want to give it to this guy and don't want to say good things about him. Negative feelings, even if it seems childish, right, about anyone, may be subconscious, but will affect how enthusiastic that person is about to tell you what they're about to tell you about the man or the woman. Or you might see the opposite; they might respond with extreme exuberance and support. Perhaps the boy's mother, that the person you are calling a huge favor. Lent them some money. Now because they got a big loan from that family, they're gonna speak only nice things about them. Even though there might be issues with the boy or girl that are not good, but since they, you know, they did them a favor, they're not gonna say anything bad about them. So you have to be, you have to be on the lookout for this stuff. It's very important. Okay. Keep in mind that it's best to speak to many people to see if you get a consistent description. And remember that it is okay if one person doesn't rave about the boy. Not everyone is going to love the guy or the girl. The essential point is to examine what is being said and listen to how it's said and see if there's any hesitancy on the part of the speaker. Knowing that people might have hidden agendas. It's helpful to reflect on your own life experience and knowledge that people are not perfect and don't always respond to each other in the same ways. Be a little forgiving. Don't you want people to also be forgiving with you? Be flexible and reasonable with regard to what's truly unimportant and try to be committed to what is important. Let me now share an incredible story about this, what it means. Round two about a person who got married a second time. I was walking out of synagogue, zipping up my bag, my prayer shawl. When my phone rang, I was surprised to hear from my friend Michael, an old friend with whom I had been in contact in years. Michael, I said, what's new? I asked him, it's been so long, how are you? And how's your family? Fine, thank God. Everyone's fine. Listen, I have something I need to ask you. Michael's voice was now hesitant. He was clearly uncomfortable. Are you in a rush? Or do you have a few minutes to spare for me? I have some very important things to ask you. Of course I can spare a few minutes. You're a good friend. How can I help you? I asked him, getting into my car to head back home for breakfast. Well, you see, it's like this. Do you know an older guy named Mr. Friedman? Israel Friedman? I heard that he prays in your shul. It's for a shidduch. It's for my mother. I don't know if you know, but my father died two years ago, and now my mother is ready to remarry. She met Rabbi Israel a couple of times, and they seem to get along very well. But we're a little nervous. We want to make sure that she's marrying someone who will be good to her. Because we don't want my mother to get stuck with a bad man. I was quiet for a moment. While Michael misunderstood it, which Michael misunderstood as discomfort. I'm so sorry if I'm putting you on the spot, Michael said. To be honest, I know it's awkward for you to answer this question. I wish I didn't have to get involved, get you involved. Your mother is depending on you to help her, I asked him. Yes, ever since my father died, we've sort of changed roles, said Michael. I feel very strange because now I have to take care of my mother. In the old days, my mother took care of me. I swallowed twice. I had been near Michael, I'm going to tell you something very important. No matter what anyone tells you, you must get involved and help your parents. You have to help your mother. Your mother needs you to protect her. There is no one else who can help her. No one else who cares for her like you do. Believe me when I say I'm speaking from experience. Thanks for telling me. I needed to hear that Michael said. My sister and I we're very anxious about my mother remarrying. After, and people are telling us, don't get involved. You're going to hear only the negatives because deep down, you really don't want her to get married. But this is not about being selfish. It's because we love her so much and we want my mother to be happy. I knew exactly what I would tell Michael. My mother was in a better world. She left the world. But the tragedy of her second marriage was still fresh in my mind. And now he tells us the story that he, wanted, that he told Michael. I was born in the 1950s when my parents were no longer young. My only brother, Yehuda, was born 18 months later. We were my parents' only children. They source of pride and joy. They were their revenge on Hitler because my parents were Holocaust survivors. My mother was a Holocaust survivor from Hungary who had lost her entire family in Auschwitz. And my father, who was from Poland, was the only survivor of his large family. We meant everything to my parents because they loved us. They had us when they were older, and my parents were so close to us, and they meant everything to us. We were raised without much money in a small little apartment on the Lower East Side in New York, but we, we didn't we, we didn't care about. We didn't have money. Our parents compensated us by giving us so much love. Because of their wartime experiences, my parents were frail and weak and very sick. My father's health was especially bad because he got tuberculosis right before the Americans came and liberated the concentration camps. He weighed only 70 pounds when American soldiers found him near a pile of dead bodies. They thought he was dead. 70 pounds and still fighting for his life. They took him to the hospital where the American soldiers and the staff nursed him back to health. Although he didn't have the strength For heavy work, he worked long hours when he got to America in factories to support his family. And he has to support his kids and his wife. When we were growing up, we were never deprived of anything. Most of our classmates came from the same backgrounds and we made the best of our lives. We lived all week for Shabbos because that was the one day we, my father didn't work and we were able to be together and have two meals together. When our father would spend time with us, he would take us to shul, tell us stories of his childhood in Poland. Our childhood came to a crashing end one summer in the 1960s when I was 11 and my brother Yehuda was nearly 10. My father was not feeling well. He was winded, very tired and out of breath. But he kept going to work, trying to save up money to send us to summer camp. My father didn't have the money to send us to camp. He worked very hard hours because he wanted to make the money in order to be able to pay the camp. We finally left for camp the first week of July. We enjoyed only three days of sunshine when the phone call came from Brooklyn, informing us that our father had collapsed and he was in the hospital, in critical condition after suffering a heart attack. A staff member drove us back to Brooklyn. He was grim, he was sad, and spoke little during the endless ride. It was only when we got home that we learned the bad news. Our beloved father was gone leaving our mother a widow with two young orphans. I recall the shiva in our tiny apartment. So many people who came to comfort my mother and to sigh over the, the two Yasomim, the two orphans, me and my brother. Our rabbi helped us say Kaddish. And then after the neighbors left and the shiva was over, I, long, I remember the long, quiet, empty days we spent in the city trying to make sense of our new life. We had no relatives, no family to help us, nobody to help us navigate our new reality. We had only one mother who was forced to become strong overnight and to be both our mother and father to her young children. She was only 40 years old, alone, in a strange country, with no family at all. I have no idea how my mother was able to carry on. I'm in awe of her strength. My mother devoted herself to our education. She scraped together the money for my bar mitzvah, for my brother's bar mitzvah, hired someone to teach us had to read and don't fill in and called our rabbis to see how we were doing. Years later she told me she never considered remarrying because she did not want to cause any more upheaval in our lives. She wanted us to have a balanced, calm life. She was afraid that if she would remarry, that would cause turbulence and problems to us. And she didn't want to cause us any more problems. When my brother and I became 18 years old, she managed to send us to Israel to learn in yeshiva. Which was, not un- which was not common then, like today. It cost a lot of money 30 years ago to send a boy to Israel. Not many of our friends learned in Israel. All those years, my mother rarely bought herself anything. She wouldn't buy herself shoes, she wouldn't buy herself clothing. All the money that she made would go straight to our education, spending all the money she earned on my brother and me. We remained in Israel for several years, and eventually, my brother and I both got married in Jerusalem. When I think back, I'm astounded that my mother did not insist we marry American girls And come back to live near her. But she didn't care about herself. She was focused on her kids. And whatever she had, she gave to her kids. Once we were both living in Israel and raising our young children there, we begged her to come live near us. So she could get pleasure and nachas and satisfaction from our children. Those are her grandchildren. But she refused. She said she had a job. She loved her job in New York. She had worked for the same company since my father had died. She had risen through the ranks. And she now was the office manager for 30 people. She liked her work. She was satisfied. She had her neighbors, her community, her friends, her society. So she didn't want to disrupt her life. She was no longer young. It was hard for her to uproot herself to come and live in Jerusalem, in a country that she has no friends, no job, no security. We did manage to spend all the holidays together. Rosh Hashanah. Pesach and Sukkot, Shavuos and Hanukkah, my mother would fly in and spend the holidays with us. And of course, she never missed any of our simchas. But we still worried about her because she was so far away from us, and she was not getting any younger. My mother had always been a private person. She never talked about her life and what she needed. Everything was always about us and our families. She always gave us. She didn't talk too much about herself. We had no idea she was considering remarriage. And we certainly could not imagine that it would happen without her even telling us. And that's what my mother did. She got remarried without even telling us. In the mid-1980s, I received a second phone call that would change my life. And not for the better. By now, my brother Yehuda had three children. I had four children. We were all living in Jerusalem. We were both still learning in Yerushalayim. And this was due largely to my mother's financial help. Because without her, we wouldn't be able to afford it. She paid for us to be able to sit and learn and pay for all our expenses, including our rent and our children's all our children's expenses. It would have been impossible without my mother's help. We had gotten used to having her visit us several times a year to come to Israel, but we didn't want to accept it, hoping that when she retired from her job, she would finally move to Israel to live next to us. And then one day, I received a long letter from my mother. This was very surprising. No matter what, we always spoke on the phone. My mother didn't write me letters, so it was very strange. In all the years i had been in Israel, my mother had never sent me a letter, other than a note she tucked inside a package, maybe she sent me food or whatever, and the contents of her letter were shocking. The letter began with an apology for writing instead of calling. She explained that it was too hard for her to share the news on the phone. She informed me that she'd gotten married two days earlier. Her new husband was Shmuel Weiss, a wealthy businessman and a person who did a lot of work with the government as a businessman. He was the great uncle of one of her co-workers and it was the co-worker who was the Khan that set her up with this man. She said she hoped that I would understand why she got married and she looked forward to having us meet her new husband. I read the letter three times and then I called my brother Yehuda in shock. He had received a similar letter. She wrote one to me and she wrote one to Yehuda. We both felt terrible that we were so far away and we were so desperate to find out more about my mother's new husband. Who was this guy? Was he a good guy? Was he a bad guy? What's his background? What's his, what's his, you know, uh, <clears throat> what's his demeanor like? What kind of personality does he have? I began doing research, calling people from Israel to New York. At first, we were reassured, everyone said great things about him, that he was a big bald stuck and gave a lot of charity, that, he had, that his deceased wife, Fuma, had been a great woman and had done a lot of good, and that they had wonderful children. But when I called my mother, she didn't sound happy. That was the problem. My mother didn't sound happy. You know you know your parents. You could tell when they sound happy and when they don't sound happy. Our conversations, which were always long and detailed, were now short and very curt. At first, we thought maybe that she was preoccupied with her new husband. But after a few such phone calls, we decided to fly to New York, me and Yehuda. We kept it a surprise and we called her only once we got to New York. She didn't sound very happy to hear from us. It seemed to me that she was actually apprehensive that we had come. Nevertheless, she invited us to her beautiful, big, brand new home for supper that evening. Yehuda and I knocked on the door, not knowing what to expect. It was opened not by my mother, but by her new husband. He tried to be friendly and, you know, nice in his excitement about meeting us, but there was something not real about his behavior. It looked like he was faking it. Like as if it was exaggerated behavior. My mother hugged and kissed us, but we detected something wasn't right. The light seemed to be gone from her eyes. You know, a person has a certain sparkle to their eyes, the happiness, the energy. You could see it in their eyes. My mother's light was gone. It was dimmed. She served us our favorite supper in a beautiful, gorgeous dining room, on gorgeous Lennox dishes. The kind of things that my mother could never afford before. But we felt like we were eating sand. Her husband, he dominated the conversation. Didn't even let her talk. Talking, showing us everything He owned. He didn't care about us. He made fun of the fact that we were learning in yeshiva. All during the meal, my mother was standing next to by, going back and forth, afraid of him, constantly giving him whatever he wanted, making sure everything was in order. Instead of complimenting my mother on her efforts, Shmuel kept ordering her around, do this, do that, go get me this, go get me that. Asking her, why would you make the balloons so sweet? Why would you forget to put soup in the, salt in the soup? We couldn't believe how this man behaved to my mother. Oi! I don't like this Shmuel, I think mommy has made a terrible mistake, have told me. have said to me, as soon as the door was closed behind us, we walked to the home of Yuda's wife's uncle, who was hosting us. This was the first time we would not be staying with our mother, even though she had a house that had six bedrooms. They weren't invited by the new husband. But that was fine, we understood, maybe he didn't want us in his house. I can't understand what mommy saw in him. I don't like him either, I told my brother. But the main thing is that let's hope mommy's happy. But was she really happy? The three days we spent with her were filled with tension and anxiety. Shmuel did have plenty of money, and our mother was now living in a large, gorgeous mansion, and not in, in a small apartment. But something seemed off. She made an effort to seem happy, but we weren't fooled. You could tell when someone is not happy. We went back home feeling very uneasy. About the whole situation. And as the months passed, we discovered that our mother's marriage was worse than we expected. She didn't speak much about Shmuel or her new life. But then again, she didn't speak much at all. She called us from time to time, but it was always from a different number. It wasn't her number. Mommy, where are you calling from? I would ask her. Oh, I'm making the phone call from my friend Rachel's house. I'm here for a short visit. Rachel was my mother's oldest friend. Why are you not calling from your house? I would ask her. She said, my husband canceled the long distance service. He won't let me call Israel. Isn't that amazing? Look how terrible life got for her. I was extremely distressed to hear this. My mother's admission prompted me to do more research. I began calling people who might have answers. And I asked questions about her husband, Shmuel. What I learned made me so angry. He's a nasty man with a terrible temper, said David, who I had gone to school with and who did a lot of business with him. Everyone knows that he tormented and he made his wife's first wife's life miserable. It was such a rahmanis on her that she passed away. I don't understand why your mother married him, said another friend. Now watch us, all the reference checks come out negative on this guy. I heard that your mother was misled by the Shatchan who got a lot of money for convincing your mother to marry Shmuel. I feel so sorry for your mother. This is what they found out when they made the calls. And on and on it went, one call after another call of negative information after negative information about her new husband. The terrible picture that the people painted only confirmed what we saw when we met him. He was a bully who was making our mother's life miserable. We needed to get my mother away from him fast. Now that we knew the truth, we tried to persuade my mother to leave him, or at least go for help. She was in the old school, raised in a time when divorce wasn't done. She refused to consider leaving him. She was even too afraid of him to suggest counseling. My mother was married to Shmuel for six years of nightmare. Six nightmarish years. During this time, we tried everything we could have, think of to help our dear mother. But she refused to consider any help. We spoke to rabbis, social workers, anyone we thought could have an influence on him or her. I tried to get her friend Rachel to convince her, but she was adamant. She was not going to leave her husband. Period. When Shmuel learned of our involvement, he forbade my mother to speak to us. But she somehow found a way to sneak out of the house and call us from her friend. The situation was terrible. Because we were so far away, and we could do nothing to help her. She had suffered so much as a young widow, raising us alone and marrying us off. Was she destined to spend the rest of her life married to such an animal? All we could do was pray that God would have mercy and rescue our beloved mother from her painful marriage. And ultimately, that's exactly what happened. Though not in the way we expected One day Shmuel collapsed and died of a heart attack. All his money went to his two children from his first marriage. My mother got nothing. He had forced her to quit her job, and now she had no source of income and no roof over her head. No way to live. We didn't mourn Shmuel, the man who made my mother's life miserable for so many years. But we had one thing to thank him for, because after his death, We were finally able to get my mother to move to Israel. She lived with us for 10 years. She had a beautiful life with us. Until she was she passed away with her family at her side. But I didn't tell you, I didn't tell Michael all this. I just said, Michael, I beg you. I plead with you. Do everything in your power to help your mother make a smart choice. Our mother didn't tell us about her decision to get married until it was too late. If your mother is involving you, In the process, you owe it to her to do everything you can to make sure she's marrying a mensch, she's marrying a good person. I don't know the person that you want me to check out to to guide you, but I will try to help you get in touch with others. Please investigate until you're fully comfortable with him. Your mother's life is at stake. After I hung up the phone, I decided that more people should be made aware of their responsibility to look into shiduchim, to do the proper research and homework before you go out with someone or you allow your son and daughter to go out with someone. It was an honor and a pleasure to present this wonderful presentation tonight. Again, anyone who needs my help in Shadduch a matchmaking or you'd like a consultation on a dating relationship that you're in or Shalom Bias issue, feel free to reach out to me from anywhere in the world at 305-206-1916. Again, that's 305-206-1916. I'd be delighted to help you. Thank God we've helped many others and thank God so many people have been getting engaged. It's been wonderful, a wonderful season. Have a great week and a good Shabbos.